0: Hi everybody, this is Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Welcome to Prophecy Today. We're going to take the next 90 minutes, that's an hour and a half, and we're going to take a look at the major trends of Bible prophecy. As a ministry, Prophecy Today is committed to keeping their eyes on what's going on around the world to keep you aware of where we are on God's timetable. As a matter of fact, we are examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And today we're going to take a look at those four major trends so that you might be better aware of where you are and where we are on God's prophetic timetable. Let's go right now as we join Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, my father, as he is interviewing Rabbi Yoel Karen on the importance of the Temple Mount as it relates to Jewish history, Bible prophecy, and the progress for what's been done for the rebuilding of the next temple in the city of Jerusalem. Yoel
1: Karen is a rabbi, but in addition to that, very knowledgeable of what's happening throughout all of Israel. We could talk about the political aspect, but I want to focus with the rabbi on the Temple Mount, on what is taking place as it relates to preparations for the next temple, etc. Rabbi, great to have you along with us today as one of our broadcast partners as we take a look at top news stories coming out in particular with you, for example, uh, what's going on in Jerusalem in the Temple Mount.
2: As always, I appreciate you having me.
1: Thank you so much for being available. Let's do focus on the Temple Mount. It's been somewhat of a controversy, both from the Palestinian side, and they continue to deny that there's ever been a Jewish presence on the Temple Mount, or even at the Western Wall. Now, but the Israeli government is not helping to give the capability for the people who would really... the religious Jewish people who would like to go up onto the Temple Mount, have some time to uh, just stand there. I remember looking back over Hanukkah, there were many who wanted to go there and uh, to, to just meditate up there on the Temple Mount, trying to follow the rules that had been laid down. But uh, both the Israeli government and the Palestinians, let's take it from the Israeli government. I mean, they should be the friends of those who want to do something on the Temple Mount. They don't seem to be.
2: You would think, you know, that they would uh, they, they, even any minimal national pride that these people would have would would stop them from the things that they do and that they say. I was so embarrassed with with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu getting up and declaring to the world that uh, the western wall is not negotiable and, and it 's under full Israeli sovereignty uh, in, in effect he's to mention that the western wall is yours without mentioning that the temple mount that it 's holding up is yours is is, is absolutely ridiculous. He basically denied, without saying it, he publicly denied that that the uh, Temple Mount is non-negotiable and is and is entirely Jewish. So it's just it's it's really really sad, really frustrating to hear that those kinds of cowardly statements coming out of the Prime Minister of the Nation of Israel.
1: Now, does that enhance the Palestinian attack on the reality of truth that there has been a presence on the Temple Mount at least since the times of Abraham, when he went there with Isaac? To offer him on Mount Moriah, which is the same as the Temple Mount, and that dates back uh, almost four thousand years ago
2: of course any any sign of weakness emboldens them, and they're, they're, they're not they 're not idiots they 're very intelligent and they can see they can see a weak point and they know how to exploit it and and they know that israel 's unwillingness to to publicly state the truth is is a weakness that they can exploit
1: now talk to me just about that 4,000-year-ago event that did take place. And, and let others know. We, we've got a litany of things, I would think, and just discuss it with me, if you will. Abraham there, and then King David purchasing the threshing floor from one on the Jebusite, Solomon building the first temple. Just go through those things for us and rehearse them so those eavesdropping on the conversation can realize how important the Temple Mount is to the Jewish people.
2: Right, right. Even, you know, and not only was was this the place that that Abraham, this is the Mount Moriah mentioned in the Bible, and going back further than that, Jewish tradition holds that this, that the 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 foundation stone where the Holy of Holies was, is the very point, the very the, very infinite point from which the entire universe sprang, and so then going forward, you have this as the point where uh, where actually the, the Garden of Eden was. Where the where Abraham prepared to sacrifice Isaac, it, it is, that's the the technical name of the mountain is is Har Moriah, Mount Moriah. It, it's only called the Temple Mount because of the association with the Temple after it was built there. Then uh, going forward, you have David purchasing. You have the Jebusite offering him to take it for free, and he refuses, exactly as Abraham refused to take the Cave of Machpelah in Hebron for free. He insisted on buying it. Because he, he could see, he, he, you know, we our rabbis tell us that the wise man is the one that who, who can see what's 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 coming down. These is, in Hebrew, it's roe at the sees that which is being born. Abraham knew what would happen in the future. David knew what would happen in the future, and they insisted on buying these places. The rabbis say there's three places that the nations can never say we stole from them, and that is the Cave of Machpelah in Hebron the kever uh, of the tomb of Joseph in in Shechem and the temple mount all of those were bought and paid for fair and square and yet all three of those sites are not
1: under Jewish control today and very controversial in fact the ancient Jewish prophet Zechariah in his book chapter 12 I think is verse 2 where it says Jerusalem shall be a cup of trembling, basically symbolic referring to the controversy surrounding the Temple Mount uh, until the coming of the Messiah. That is a key component in end-time prophecy, uh, but it's evidence that we're quickly... I remember talking with uh, the number two man over at the Temple Institute, Rabbi Chaim Richmond. He said, we're living in the days of Zechariah chapter 12. Would you agree with that?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely we are
1: and indeed it's not going to get any better it's going to only intensify
2: for sure that's 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 something for every individual who is who is alive and listening to us right now to consider the generation that they've been born into the generation that is that is seeing these things come to pass Prophecy has been fulfilled for centuries now but the the birth pangs are beginning to grow closer and closer and 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 more and more intense all the time so this is really in a transitional generation right now where we're actually seeing these things. It's incredible to be alive and be part of it.
3: It
1: certainly is. I would agree with that. 2,500 years ago was when Zechariah wrote that passage of Scripture about the controversy surrounding Jerusalem, and there were no Islamists at that time, according to the record of history. But now it looks to me, and I want to get your opinion, the Islamic element that's in Jerusalem and focused on that Temple Mount, they seem to be that which is the underlying cause for all this controversy.
2: Yes, actually, history is something that is very, to them, it's, it's, a, it's not a black and white thing. What happened yesterday, you can interpret as you as you wish today, and you can change the facts to match whatever is more advantageous to you. That's the way that they they look at history, and and they don't understand truth and falsehood the way we do as absolutes. They're all relative, and they can all be changed up to to suit your purpose. So, according to them, there were, everyone was a Muslim before before Islam even existed. Abraham, Adam, everyone—they were all Muslim prophets. The 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 Temple Mount was a mosque before there was before there was a Muhammad, before there was an Islam. To you and I, it sounds ridiculous. To them, it doesn't sound ridiculous because truth is relative. Yeah. To them.
1: It's yeah. totally subjective to what you've heard or studied or lived through in the past. Well, indeed, God's Word is absolute. It's objective, and those ancient Jewish prophets talked about it. Let us know beforehand, pre-wrote history, as you might say, to how it would be in the end times. Well, there's going to be a temple that's going to be built as well. Update us. What's the latest on the preparations to build that temple on that very controversial piece of real estate? Well,
2: I can can tell you this, that over the past year, there have been there's been quite a shift. There haven't been a lot of new vessels and things like that being created, because, quite frankly, most of it's done. What we're seeing right now is the shift in the consciousness and the way that people, uh, the average Jew on the street, and politicians are relating to the Temple Mount. Of course, you know we have Moshe Feiglin, who's declared that the first thing he would do if elected prime minister would be to go up to the Temple Mount and bow down and thank God for him being elected. It just so happens that there will be a group of Knesset candidates, and a lot of the people who are running for the Israeli Parliament are going to go up to the Temple Mount to give thanks to God and to ask his blessing on their on their campaigns and to, to put them into the seats in the Knesset. These are things that are completely we've had since the Temple Mount was reopened to Jews, this is the first time anything like this has happened so that's the. That's what's bringing us closer. That's the, 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 the type of preparations that we can talk about. People are preparing their minds and their bodies now like they never have before. They're preparing for the temple with their feet by walking up to the temple mount itself. And that's where the real change has come this year.
1: Now, let me make sure I understood what you said. All the implements needed to operate the temple, the training of the priest who will be those serving at the temple, every item needed to build that building, it's basically in place, and now you're preparing the hearts and minds of the Jewish people for that temple.
2: Absolutely. That's exactly what's happening right now. Now, of course, there are a few things that are that are not ready that we can't just uh, you know create out of thin air, like the ashes of the red heifer. There are only a few sacrifices, parts of the sacrificial service, that can be done without those ashes. The Passover offering can be brought; certain public sacrifices can be brought, but a great many of offerings and sacrifices cannot be brought until we get those ashes and purify a new generation of of kohanim, of priests. So there are some of the pieces that are still not fit into the puzzle yet that we still don't have, but we could right now. We have everything we need in place. If we had the political, the physical ability to walk up there and do it, we could reinstitute the divine service today.
1: Wow. Rabbi Yoel Karin. He updates us on the controversy surrounding the Temple Mount and also preparations to build that next temple on that very sacred piece of real estate, especially sacred to the Jewish people. Rabbi, you've helped us to look back at, we appreciate it so much. We'll continue to have these conversations.
0: Thank you, my good friend. Thank you. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and Rabbi Yoel Kieran. what a great interview on the importance of the Temple Mount and the progress of the rebuilding of the next temple in the city of Jerusalem. You know, that temple is mentioned several times in Bible prophecy in the book of Daniel, the book of Matthew, and the book of Revelation. We're going to take a quick break. Dr. John Wickham will be joining us, and we'll be right back, right here on Prophecy Today.
3: Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set. Every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the Scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and
0: make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. You know, one of the indicators that we are living in the end times is the fact that there are more and more people today blaspheming God than ever before. Dr. DeYoung spoke to Dr. John Wickham on this particular issue. You
1: know, there are certain interviews that I so enjoy being able to do on this particular broadcast. One of them would be Dr. John Whitcomb. He's a man who went to Princeton University. He came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Later, he studied theology, and then he went into teaching theology and has been a professor in seminary for a number of years. But now, traveling as an itinerant speaker, traveling across the countryside, even at his age. Dr. John, how old are you? About 83, 84? About 88. 88 years old. If I'm up and taking nourishment at that time, I'm going to be thrilled. You are such a blessing, not only to me, but the entire Christian world. The books you've written, The Genesis Flood with Dr. John Morris, and the other books uh, that have been so valuable to each and every one of us who want to study some aspect of theology. You're just a real blessing, and thank you for being available today.
4: Thank now, you. Thank you so much, Jimmy.
1: You're certainly welcome. What prompted my conversation with you is that there is a uh, Oscar-winning actor named Jamie Foxx. Now, he's, he's not the subject of what we're going to be talking about, but he's the one that made the statement at a big awards rally of some type, I think, for the Soul Train uh, Singers, etc., Uh, wherever this was, and it was on the BET cable network. He stood up, and I've seen the video of this. Many people across the world have been able to see this video. He stood up and said, let's give honor to God. But then he followed that statement, and that was all right as far as I'm concerned, but then he followed that statement, and our Lord and Savior, President Barack Obama. Now, in my opinion, when he made the second phrase in that statement— He Blasphemed Jesus Christ. And I want to talk about that with you. Uh, First, before we get into the deep study of blasphemy as it relates to the end-time events that are going to unfold, can you give us, those eavesdropping on this conversation, a definition of blasphemy? What does it mean if somebody blasphemes God?
4: Well, Jimmy, it means to speak something against God's glory, against His holiness, against His nature, to substitute someone else, something else in his place, to degrade him, to in some way deny him, to distort what God says about him. All these things are very dangerous things to even think about, to say nothing of talking about. And I look at the book of Acts, the history of the early church, and look what happened to a man who didn't honor God properly. It says in Acts chapter 12, verse 20, he the king of Israel, was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And with one accord, they came to him, and having won over Blasas, the king's chamberlain, and they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. They were terrified. They did what they could to make him happy. Look what they did to him. On an appointed day, Herod, the king, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. Now, I'm not comparing this directly to our president, but listen to the situation. And the people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. What happened? Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him. Why? Because he did not give God the glory, and he died. And I say, oh, Lord, help me to be very careful, very careful what I think, what I say about you, your word, your will. But I'm terrified, Jimmy, at people who do this kind of thing and substitute, can you imagine this, the Lord Jesus Christ for some mere person on this earth. My hope, my prayer, my trust, and I do pray for the White House occupants, that nothing like this will, even for a moment, enter the heart of our president. And you say, yes, I think maybe you have a point. I just am terrified, aren't
1: you? Well, you better believe I certainly am. And in fact, I have been praying for Jamie Foxx. He's quite the actor out in Hollywood. Uh, But to make that statement, and again, let's make clear, the president did not make the statement. Jamie Foxx made the statement about President Obama and referred to him as the Lord and Savior. And that's the area that we consider blasphemy. Uh, But as you mentioned, John, it's very important that we pray for our president that he not even consider uh, in any way, shape, or form his popularity by a re-election to president of the United States and even consider that could be a a possibility at all. Uh, We're talking about blasphemy. I remember reading in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, I believe it's verses 1, 5, and 6, that the, the design of the Antichrist, when he comes on the scene, is going to be blasphemy as well. Back over in the book of Daniel, it says, when the Antichrist comes to power... He will speak great things against the Most High God, which is the name of God the Father. The Antichrist is going to blaspheme God in so many different ways. But uh, i have to come back and think about, for example, family television. I see so much blasphemy put forth by the actors, uh, uh, the new movies coming out, the books you read, people talking in the street. They're all blaspheming God. Is this an indicator we're quickly moving towards that scenario that's found in God's word for the last days?
4: Absolutely. And of course, Revelation thirteen five says, there was given him, the Antichrist, a mouth speaking blasphemies, And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name in his tabernacle. And I say, Lord, we see it now. The whole world is gradually becoming what? Conditioned for this kind of thing to substitute for the glory of God. Something a mere man, a mere man is saying and doing. Lord, don't give us what we deserve. Help us, preserve us, bring us to repentance to come to Jesus Christ, your son, our savior, our Lord, who alone deserves glory in the history
1: of the universe. Yeah, we see that the Antichrist is going to blaspheme. I believe, as 1 John says, the spirit of Antichrist is already here. I've walked on high school campuses, and I can remember when I was in high school many, many years ago, uh, when, uh, you know, they used to use the Lord's name in vain. Uh, recently, I was on a junior high or a middle school campus, and then I've been in an elementary campus where I hear some of those young children speaking words that even a a veteran sailor would not even know. But is this not evidence as well? We're not only talking about world leaders blaspheming God, the Antichrist blaspheming God, but even with our lips, people today is becoming more and more common to hear the Lord's name in vain, and that's blasphemy against God as well, is it not?
4: Absolutely, and even born-again Christians will give an account to Jesus at the judgment throne of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, for what they've said, what they have thought, what they meant by what they've said, and what they've done since they were saved. I mean, even Christians, their salvation is not in question, but whether they receive a reward or lose one, it will be determined by a loving, gracious, wise, holy God at that judgment throne of Christ, which could happen, begin to happen today.
1: You know, let me just conclude our conversation with this thought. Uh, Reading through the book of Ezekiel, chapter 35, I come to the understanding of a judgment pronounced against Mount Seir, and when you go back to Genesis, chapter 36, you see that's where Esau went to live uh, with his descendants, the Edomites, uh, there in southern Jordan, what is modern-day southern Jordan today, and it's now called Edom, or in biblical terms, it's called that. Uh, But uh, as I look at that judgment pronounced against the Palestinian people, and this is just another evidence of what we're seeing happening in our world today, it says that uh, in verse 5 of chapter 35 of Ezekiel that uh, you kill the Jewish people. And then in verse 10 it talks about, these people, the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, the Palestinians, are taking the land away from the Jewish people, and the Lord says through the prophet Ezekiel, by doing this, you are blaspheming me. And so it's not only individuals, it's not only political leaders, but it's it's a group of of peoples who want to try to... uh, Divert from what God's plan is for the end times, and by that way, they can blaspheme God. Again, is this not another evidence of where we are as we approach the time of the rapture?
4: Everything we see happening seems to end that direction. Keep our eyes on Israel especially, because they soon will make a covenant in desperation for security with someone for seven years, by which time the true church will be gone and the end of the world is near.
1: Well, that's our blessed hope, the glorious of appearing of our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. Dr. John Wickham, our special friend and a terrific broadcast partner with us, giving us insight into why blasphemy, and spoken by any individual or pronounced by a world leader or even a nation of the world, is an evidence of the soon coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to call us out at the rapture and then the appearance of Antichrist, as uh, Dr. John has told us. Thank you so much, dear brother. We'll talk again down the line.
4: God be with you. Have a wonderful day. Praise the Lord.
0: Thank you, Dr. DeYoung and Dr. John Wickham. I'm reminded of what it talks about in Second Peter chapter 3 when it talks about the last days. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 3, Knowing this verse that scoffers will come in the last days. Let me remind you that there are no other prophecies to be fulfilled. If you look down at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. No other prophecies to be fulfilled, just the Lord wanting all to come to repentance. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to have more interviews with men that are helping us and helping you to be aware of where we are on God's prophetic timetable, right here on Prophecy Today. How do
3: you like your news?
0: Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Today we're focusing on major trends of Bible prophecy and we're listening in as my dad, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, interviews men that are going to help focus us in as to where we are on God's prophetic timeline. Our next interview is with Dr. Randy Price. Dad interviewed Dr. Randy Price as he is involved in something special and looking for Noah's Ark. Now we bring to these
1: microphones a longtime friend, Dr. Randall Price, and he is a prolific author, many books especially focused on Jerusalem, the temple, the next Jewish temple, etc. But he has a new venture now, and he's out with a group of very, very qualified personnel looking for Noah's Ark, the original Ark that dates back some 4,500 years ago. We'll get to that discussion and find out, get an update on what's happening in their search for the ark. And Randy, let me talk to you about the ark here. We're talking about Noah's ark. There's some things that are happening. Actually, they've just been announced and what will be looked at by many people across the world on ABC upcoming in December will be a look at a life-size, two-scale ark that has been built, a 20-year project by Johan Ubers. He is in the Netherlands, a Dutchman who was a builder by trade, and he actually has replicated Noah's ark following the directions found in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. Uh, I don't know if you've been there to see it. I'm sure you must be aware of it, but let me also bring into our discussion ABC has two specials coming up, December the 21st, and also uh, December the 28th with Christian Amanpour, and she's going to visit that ark. I'm, I'm interested, what are your thoughts about this? Uh, is this good as it relates to the real truth that's found in God's Word about Noah's ark?
5: Well, Jimmy, I think anybody who takes literally the story in Genesis is doing a good thing, because we live in a skeptical age in which that's been reduced to a myth, even by many prominent evangelicals. And so what he's doing, he's he's taking dimensions that are given to us and making a seaworthy vessel, which uh, simply underscores the fact that these were literal directions, a literal arc was constructed, because it can be constructed, and it is something that is not nonsense, it actually will perform uh, as expected. And so from that point of view, it's a very good testimony that God's Word is, as it says, something that literally occurred. You know, as you've already mentioned, we're in a quest of our own to try to find something of the original, and no one yet knows exactly some of the details that are given in the Bible because they're they hard to decipher and understand, in fact, what Uber's doing in making a A model, uh, as he is, uh, helps us understand that more, because when you get down to actually creating architecturally some of these things, there's only certain ways they will work. And and so some of the uh, misunderstandings of the Hebrew language in those texts might be understood better when someone actually constructs a model.
1: Are you aware of the project uh, that's being done by the Creation Museum there in the Cincinnati, Ohio area with Ken Ham and his Answers in Genesis They're supposedly replicating the ark as well?
5: Yes, I have. I, You know, I've been there uh, a couple of times, and actually before they started the project, although in their museum uh, they have their own uh, films they've made of the kind of model that they believe um, – functioned as the ark, and have a, a little different perspective on it in terms of how they think it had to, to function in terms of the nautical capabilities and uh, other things, which are a little different than what most people have expected. Uh, all of this will be understood better if um, an excavation uh, in an expedition actually occurs.
1: Well, I want to get to that with you in just a moment. Let me bring up one more thing. Uh, Before we again confirm what God's Word has to say there in the book of Genesis, I understand that Robert Ballard, he is an underwater archaeologist and I think played a key role in finding the Titanic on the bottom of the ocean. But he is now in search of uh, proof that, indeed, Noah's flood did take place. Now, when I read the article, I wasn't able to determine whether he believed it was a worldwide flood or regional there in the Black Sea area. But off the coast of Turkey, he's doing some diving. Uh, Is this just then again an effort for people to say, well, yeah, there was some kind of a flood. Yeah, there was a Noah. Yeah, there was an ark, but it wasn't a worldwide. What do you know about uh, Robert Ballard's project?
5: Ba- Ballard's work, uh, he would interpret this as a regional flood, a, a large region, as the result of the melting of the last ice age. And so he says that uh, inundated, uh, came over the land, inundated this large area, and just simply submerged the civilization that was there so he's discovered the shoreline of this ancient civilization and uh, recovered different types of artifacts and things from there you know the problem here he he would put that between 5 and 7000 years ago more than that it, it doesn't really fit the time of the biblical flood it's actually considered earlier than that from the way they're looking at it and uh because it was a regional flood and connected to the ice age We would look at this as post-flood. and Part of the problem is simply the chronology, um, archaeologists and dating their different strata depend upon the geologic timetable, which is based on evolutionary concepts and and not not a necessarily observable fact, but a hypothetical fact. So the problem is everyone approaching this uh, from a biblical position has to think a little differently in terms of dates. Which is why even when you do radiocarbon dates on things uh, you have to say if this is pre-flood or post-flood or near to the flood uh, it's going to be affected by a lot of factors including being submerged in water or you know how long it did before it was actually used and all kinds of things
1: so very interesting conversation we're having randy and what i'm hearing is basically there's different approaches or different ideas about uh, how the flood uh, did take place and what the ark was like, etc. But God's word is absolute, is it not, there in Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8 when it records uh, the flood and, and what happened during that period of time, maybe some 4,500 years ago.
4: Well,
5: that's right. I mean, the descriptions in the Bible are quite explicit. We have to remember they weren't giving us those descriptions so that we could build an ark uh, I do think they were given so that if the ark, were ever found, would be able to identify we found the right thing. On the other hand, it's an account of the judgment of this world and the salvation that came through the ark, which was the picture of you know, how God approaches sinful humanity and how he offers that, uh, that gift of salvation. So I think for many reasons, that account is controversial and opposed by those who, of course, have not accepted the scriptures as the word of God.
1: I know that you have dedicated a great part of your life and your ministry uh, to joining with a team to go out in search of the real Noah's Ark there in uh, the area of the world that the Bible seems to indicate it would be located. And I understand also, as you mentioned early on, that you can't talk a lot about it because of the sensitivity of this project. But uh, first of all, just give us a brief, if you can, update on how the project's going. And then tell me, and tell those eavesdropping on this conversation, why are you dedicating your part of your life to search for this ark?
5: Well, first let me explain that this is a scientific expedition. Uh, Everybody involved have certain professional credentials or bring certain professional skills to it. Uh, The team consists of uh, about 20 individuals American, Turkish, Kurdish, uh, so that we have um, a joint operation, although it's led from the American side. The purpose of it, of course, is to follow through on data that we have. It wasn't simply running out to look at shadows in the snow or follow stories from locals. Um, We used satellite data uh, and then took uh, geophysical teams to do ground-penetrating radar uh, at the site try to locate things that were identified by the satellite, and we feel we've done that. Uh, We've been there now four years, uh, each time performing this kind of thing to narrow down the search parameters. Uh, We've excavated uh, twice to a depth of, in the glacier, at 17,000 feet. We've excavated to a depth of about 40 feet. Each time we've gotten closer and closer to where we, we feel the anomalies are. Now, you remember the ark was 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. That's a very large object, but it didn't remain intact. Uh, It may have been intact in the recent past, but uh, was apparently from our data broken up, although we have very large pieces, but they're very deep beneath a glacier, from what we can tell. Again, we call them anomalies because we don't know for sure what they are, but where they are, the shape of them... Other information that we have received from our own excavations have led us to think that we at least have Noah's Ark as a good candidate. No trees on the mountain, per se, certainly 17,000 feet. No people have gone to that altitude and certainly not put something beneath the glacier some 40 feet below. This is a stationary glacier, so it hasn't moved. It hasn't broken things up. It may move some because of earthquake activity, but Generally, what's been there has been there since that uh, glacier was formed at the site at the top of the mountain. So we feel we have very good data to pursue, and that's what we're doing. And we still have another year that we're going to work on this. So for that reason, we have to be very careful in what we say publicly.
1: Why are you doing this, Randy? What's driving you?
5: Well, I'm an evangelical uh, believer. That is, I, I take the Word of God Literally and seriously, it, it forms the basis for my, not only my belief, but also my practice. And as a result, when I read the book of Genesis, I see history. It, it starts with a history of creation, moves to a history of mankind, and then narrows to a history of one part of mankind, which is Abraham and the, and the Jewish people. And just as historical as the Jewish people are, so is Noah's Ark and the account know, of the Flood, as well as verifying to the world the fact that this actually happened. And that's where my evangelical faith comes in, because, as you well know, the Lord Jesus says, as in the days of Noah so shall the days of the coming of the Son of Man be. And we live in a, an age that is just on, I think, the verge of seeing the return of Jesus Christ, and we need that wake-up call that says judgment is imminent, it comes with the, the judge, and then there's also salvation available just as there was with the ark, there is with putting one's personal trust in Christ as Savior. So that kind of message needs to be uh, well understood, and many people, because they can't trust the Bible, can't trust Christ. And archaeology and a discovery like this would, I think, move some people beyond that point of doubt to a point of decision.
1: Well, that would be a great opportunity to see people come to the Lord Jesus Christ, which is really, my friend, if you've been eavesdropping on the conversation, realize is the heart of Randy, who is out there searching for the real Noah's Ark. Randy, I appreciate what you're doing out there. Look forward to finding out more information, especially if you uh, come up with some very solid, definite evidence that uh, that is the Ark, the original one. And uh, indeed, uh, you're right, uh, as in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man, and we, I agree with you, we are quickly approaching that time. Randy, thank you so very much, my good friend, and I hope we'll have an opportunity to talk down the line. Thank
0: you, Jimmy. You know, one of the things that we do as a ministry is we try to help you discern which is fact and which is fiction. Dr. Randall Price looking for Noah's Ark is fact. We bring in Dr. Reynolds Showers, because in our world today, there are a lot of teachers that are teaching Bible prophecy, but they're not using the correct principles.
1: Right now, we're going to talk with Dr. Rennie Showers. Last time, we had an opportunity to talk to Dr. Showers. He was on our broadcast, and we started talking about some of the phenomenon that is being discussed in Bible prophecy conferences across the world and it was of some concern to me that uh, they are starting to get really radical, going far out into things like UFOs and uh, alien invasion of the earth, etc., etc. Some even talked about uh, snatching from the earth by aliens of human beings. Well, that's a bit far to where I would like to go. I want to stay within the confines of the Word of God between Genesis 1-1 and Revelation 22:21, And a man that does that meticulously is Dr. Rennie Showers. He's an author. He is a conference speaker. He's a good friend to us right here on Prophecy Today as well. And I hold in my hands right now a book entitled, Those Invisible Spirits Called Angels. It's an excellent book on angels. We have it available at our website, prophecytoday.com. We'd love to have this in your hands. You can call and make your order. Call the toll-free number, 877-674-3298. And you can get your copy of Dr. Schauer's book on angels. And Rennie, I'm so grateful that you could join us. Let's start our conversation briefly. I understand uh, that angels were created on the first day of creation. And really, I came to that conclusion by studying your book here on angels. But just briefly, rehearse for us how angels were created and tell us how that all came about.
6: Well, God, obviously, is the one that created them to serve him primarily in the universal kingdom. The Bible makes it very clear that God created the angels before he created planet Earth. And in Job chapter 38, he speaks to Job, and, and he indicates that angels were present when God laid the foundation of the Earth on day one of creation. And they, they uh, sang God's praises as they saw him create planet Earth.
1: So then it was that first day of creation that uh, the Lord brought these angelic creatures into existence. And as I understand, then, when you look at chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 31, it says that everything God had created was good. Therefore, can we conclude these were all good angels? Evil angels don't come into existence until after that.
6: You're right. And and the way that happened was the, the most magnificent of all the angelic beings that God created, uh, described in Ezekiel 28, Who was perfect in his ways from the day he was created till iniquity was found in him became consumed with pride, thinking he could make himself just like God, the the sovereign ruler of the universe. And since God had angels serving him within his kingdom, if he were to be like God, he had to have angels serving him within his kingdom. And so, this angel, God changed his name to Satan, which means enemy or adversary. And he approached other angels to persuade them to join him in his revolt against God. And so there were some of the uh, good angels that made that fateful choice. And once they did they were locked into being evil angels.
1: Now we jump that span in history, and we come and focus on the time of the tribulation, that seven years of judgment talked about in the book of Revelation, chapters 4 through 19. I asked you last time we were together, Rennie, would you explain some of the evil angelic activity? I know the word angel, or it's plural angels, the most used word in the book of Revelation, but uh, though the good angels are going to play a major role, evil angels will as well. What are some of their activities going to be during that seven-year period of time?
6: Well, for one thing, we know very clearly from Revelation chapter 16, when the next to last judgment of the tribulation is poured out upon planet Earth, that Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet are going to send uh, evil angels, uh, their demons throughout the world, to persuade the rulers of all the nations of the world to bring their combined military might together to one location. And... Zechariah, chapters 12 through 14, make it very clear that location is the nation of Israel. And that's going to be a major role that evil angels are going to play toward the end of the Tribulation. And, but we some of the earlier judgments uh, reveal that there are going to be some beings coming up out of uh, prison places and everything, apparently to do Satan's work for them in the world during the seven-year Tribulation period.
1: You know, it uh, looks to me, when we study the book of Revelation chapter 9, it describes locusts there. I've never seen a locust that has the face of a man, hair of a woman, uh, teeth of a lion, breastplate of a horse, running to battle with a scorpion's tail. And that seems to indicate, out of that prison location you were mentioning just a moment ago, these evil angels taking on forms that are not normal to what we might think an angel would look like. In fact, I'm not... I'm not sure if we know what an angel looks like since there's spirits, but uh, is that possibly uh, the case? Could these evil angels take on different forms during that seven-year time? It could
6: very well be because, you know, Satan, who was the the great angel, and everything took upon himself the form of a serpent to get man to join him in this revolt against God, and, and that's why Revelation twice calls uh, Satan uh, that... serpent of old.
1: When we look at that period of time, and when we realize that angels can take on different forms, I, I just want to speculate just for a moment. I know you don't like to do that, but let's speculate. People all the time talking about UFOs, unidentified flying objects, even in some of these prophecy conferences that are going, what I believe, a little bit crazy. They're talking about encounters with UFOs. Could these in any way be angels taking on forms of some type of an alien being or an alien object of some type?
6: Well, that, that's possible, Jimmy, but I, again, you know, we, we don't have any examples in the Bible of their taking on that kind of a form. I mean, we have examples of their taking on human form in the Bible And as we mentioned, some of these weird ones are going to come up out of the abyss and everything, uh, you know, during the the tribulation period. I've never seen anything in the Bible talking about uh, an angel becoming like uh, an impersonal metallic thing, you know, like a flying saucer or something like that. So all we can say is uh, we don't have any examples of that type of form they take upon themselves given to us in the word of god
1: what do you think all of this phenomenon this talk about alien creatures ufos etc what do you think that is total speculation
6: yeah it could be and it it could also be a satanic way of god you know deceiving people into thinking that this is what they're seeing and and uh... and, and all the rest
1: you know at the midway point of the tribulation revelation chapter 12 God, I guess, just gets fed up with these evil angels, and especially with the devil who has access to his throne to accuse the brethren on a daily basis. Yes. Uh, In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, he's going to tell Michael, get the good angels together, throw these evil angels down onto the earth. And it seems to indicate there in chapter 12, verses 13 to 17, that uh, these evil angels under the leadership of Satan go after the Jewish people. Why does that take place?
6: Yes. Well, the reason for that is, uh, according to the prophetic scriptures, God will not crush Satan and end his rule over the world system, and then God restore his theocratic kingdom rule back to planet Earth again through the Messiah until the nation of Israel repents of its rebellion against God and accepts Jesus as its Messiah and Savior. And the reason it's Israel that has to do that before God will crush Satan is because God, through the prophets, reveals that during the thousand-year reign of Christ, Israel will be the spiritual leader of the whole world.
1: So thus, then, Satan, if he can wipe out the Jewish people, God becomes incapable of being able to keep his promises. Uh, The Abrahamic covenant, uh, the land covenant, uh, the uh, Davidic covenant, the new covenant, to the Jewish people, Satan thus would be the
6: winner. And that's, you're right, Jimmy, and that's why down through the ages of time, the Jewish people have had more attempts at genocide brought against them than any other ethnic group in all of world history. Satan must eliminate them from his perspective so that God will never crush him.
1: Wow. Uh, one, One final question for you, Rennie, and we're all anticipating the soon call from the heavens by Jesus Christ for the rapture to take place, all of us Christians to go into the heavenlies. That seems to be Uh, what all these current events that align themselves with Bible prophecy are indicating. Thus, do you see evil angelic activity increasing during the time, actually before the tribulation? We talked about what they would do in the tribulation. What about leading up to that tribulation period? Do you see evil activity among the angels now?
6: Well, you you can't help but wonder, you know, some of the the weird movements now, even within what used to be Bible-believing churches and denominations. Many of them are gathering together now against Israel and putting on big conferences and saying that Israel is an apartheid nation and has no right to exist in the Middle East and ought to be driven out of there and gotten rid of. This is a lot of your organized Christian denominations and groups and everything gathering together to say that. And it has to be Uh, kind of motivating everything by satanic influence because he's going to use any tool he can to eliminate the people of Israel.
1: Yeah, I think about Daniel chapter 10, where evil angels are dispatched to take control of human political leaders. Second Corinthians chapter 11, where the angels are the evil angels led by Satan, who is an angel of light, they're out there acting as ministers of righteousness. You're talking about it in pulpits all across this country. Well, the closer we get to the rapture, would you not say we're going to see that activity intensify?
6: Oh, I wouldn't be surprised with that, Jimmy. And and uh, I, I tell you, more and more Christians are being persecuted around the world. It's unbelievable. I get almost daily reports. This, I got one today, uh, three different reports Of uh, Christians being massacred, like one, like about 70 people being killed while they're in church and everything. This is going on around the world.
1: So, this is an indication of where we are in God's time for what's going to happen. Well, God's going to be the victor. They're going to be thrown into the lake of fire forever. That's what God's word has to say. We, Both Rennie right. and I have read the last chapter. We know what's going to happen. Rennie, this is an excellent book, Those Invisible Spirits, called Angels. It's available at our website, prophecytoday.com, or call our toll-free number, 877-674-3298. Rennie, I know you're going to be busy in the next couple of weeks in conferences. Are you doing a lot of writing right now?
6: Well, I'm trying to, Jimmy. Uh But, you know, the other pressures of ministry are very intense, and uh, uh, it's almost a a fight to get the time, you know, to be doing the research and writing. But I do, uh, you know, keep writing articles for every issue of Israel My Glory magazine. The mission has asked me to start cutting back on out-traveling and ministering in order to spend more time in doing research and writing. And that's what I want to do. I'm I'm not going to totally cut out all going out to speak, but spend more time on the research and writing, because, you know, once you're dead and gone, that ministry can still continue on.
1: Absolutely, and I would have to encourage anybody and everybody, if you find a book authored by Dr. Rennie Showers, read it. It will be excellent. It'll help you grow in the Lord. Rennie, thank you so very much for your participation with us on the broadcast today. Appreciate it, and we'll talk again down the line.
6: Great, Jimmy, and thank you.
0: Dr. Rinald Showers and Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, as they discuss the proliferation of talk of aliens and UFOs and angels and how they fit into Bible prophecy. They both discuss the importance of having a proper understanding of Bible prophecy. In order to do that, you have to have the basic fundamentals for understanding Bible prophecy. We encourage you to go to our website and take a look at our School of Prophets Institute so that you might be able to have a better understanding of Bible prophecy. You know, there are over a thousand prophecies in God's Word and 500 of those prophecies have already been fulfilled. That means 500 prophecies are left to be fulfilled concerning future events. Make sure you go to our website, prophecytoday.com, where you will find out more information. You'll find out our top 10 news stories of the day, daily devotions that you can sign up for, all the information that you need to know so that you can be aware of where we are on God's prophetic timetable. Coming up after the break, we have Dr. Rob Congdon talking to us about the European Union and the importance that it plays in Bible prophecy. We'll be right back You're listening to Prophecy Today. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. This week we're taking a look at the major trends of Bible prophecy and how it helps you to keep a proper perspective on where we are on God's prophetic timetable. Right now we're going to take a look at the European Union and its correlation to the revived Roman Empire. Let's join Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and Dr. Rob Congdon.
1: Right now, we bring to these microphones a broadcast partner, Par Exelot. He's with us each and every week. I'm talking about Dr. Rob Congdon, and he's going to give us a report on the European Union and actually the continent of Europe as well. How do these two entities play in to the end-time scenario that can be found in Bible prophecy? Well, that's why we have our discussions right here on Prophecy Today. Rob, not a big news week, so I thought we'd spend some time discussing together uh, the intricacies of how the European Union seems to be, at least from afar, looks like to be the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire, that is a prophetic term, from the book of Daniel, and chapter 7 in particular, when the old Roman Empire will come back to power and play a very key role during the seven-year tribulation period. So uh, let's get it underway. And in fact, let's start with that question right there. Why do you and I, and I know I do, but you can explain for our listeners as well, why do you say that the European Union may well be at least the beginning infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire?
7: Well, I think there's probably two prime reasons. Uh, one is the countries involved in the European Union. There are 27 countries that are now members of it. All of them trace their history back to the ancient Roman Empire. In fact, you can almost draw a continuous line of uh, being parts of empires from the Roman days right to the European Union. So we have, a, a if you will, a geographic tie of these countries back to the Union. Uh, in addition, you have the very unique form of the government of the European Union, which Daniel describes one day will be a diverse government, he says the final empire in the book of Daniel. Diverse meanings unique in history, something that's never existed before. Uh, the European Union government is a government, what is called Supra national. It's a group of 27 men and women, who are not elected, they decide what happens for the European Union through their discussions and in their internal discussions. There is no voting for them. There is no check and balance of them. It's merely a, a group that, of commissioners, they're called, that run the, the government. So we have a government that is unique in history. That matches Daniel. And we have a geographic relationship to the ancient Roman Empire as
1: well. Well, and have I not heard you tell me about, for example, one of the leaders in Italy. I think the terminology was he was appointed a senator for life. That seems to have quite a bit of an interesting ring between the old Roman Empire and the revived Roman Empire.
7: Oh, absolutely. It's very interesting. The current prime minister of Italy, now he's an appointed person. Uh, in other words, he's not voted in. He was appointed by the President of Italy as Prime Minister, this gentleman Mario Monti. He was just a few uh, days before he was made Prime Minister. He was voted Senator for Life. Now that that's a term right out of the ancient Roman Empire, if you will. Uh, he is a Senator. He's a member of the Senate. Uh, only five men are allowed to hold this unique position of Senator for Life at a time. So that means he will be in the Senate for his life or unless he decides to retire. So he has a unique title, if you will, that goes back to the Roman Empire. Interestingly, he also has served on that commission that I've just referred to, this unique body of 27 men and women who basically rule the European Union. He has served many positions in there in the uh, economic area and in other areas uh, of the European Union. His background, as such, which is a requirement to be any kind of leader in the EU, he is Roman Catholic, a strong practicing Roman Catholic, which again uh, gives the ties, if you will, back to Rome and to its point. The final thing, and I, I say this cautiously because I, I realize that many people like to run with conspiracies, but significantly, uh, Mario Monte is a member of the key think tank groups of Europe, Uh, and some of those people, listeners will know, they've heard of the Trilateral Commission, the Bilderberg Group, these are think tanks, and interestingly he's founded a think tank called the Brugel, which ties very quickly to a famous artist who actually designed the European Union, uh, gave the prototype for the European Union buildings, which ties it to Babel and the Roman Empire. So we have a major leader in Europe today, very involved in the financial problems of Europe, who holds a unique title that sounds like a Roman Empire title of old. So the ties get very strong as you look at the European Union and to what once was the the Roman Empire.
1: And it looks to me, indeed, after what I've just heard you say, as if the stage is set for that revival of the old Roman Empire. Let's step back just a moment for our listeners and talk about the European Union itself. Now, I don't believe that it started out with the title European Union. If I'm correct, I believe it was the Treaty of Rome that was signed on March the 25th, 1957, there on the hills of Rome, that really got this ball rolling
7: uh... that would be what you would call the formal beginning but if you look at the history of the uh... if you want to call it the embryonic stages of the european union it began in nineteen eighteen with the league of nations uh... one of the key people that were there of, was there was a founder of it and he he worked uh... behind the scenes very quietly behind the scenes he developed what became what was called the coal commission dealing with coal and shipping, uh, that was six nations. Out of those six nations, they then advanced to form what is most people still you refer to, the common market, which we've all heard of, and now has developed, in after a time of almost 50 years now, has developed into the European Union. Uh, there has been a steady progression from 1918 to this point, to define the European Union as an empire and lead it to a a significant power, not just economics, but politically. If you really want to look at history, you go back to Dati, who's I believe I'm saying this is from memory, 13th century. He proposed the whole idea. So men have always been looking for this Union of Europe that would eventually be the world power. And, of course, what we see today in the European Union, the current leaders are talking about the same progression. They envision incorporating many more countries. When they discuss what countries they'd like to bring in, they're only countries that have some kind of ancestry, if you will, to those in the Roman Empire. So it's it's been an ongoing movement. Uh, the real success, just as you said, was with the Treaty of Rome. That's what really pulled it together and put it on the world stage But it's been progressing ever since, more and more, toward a true world empire.
1: I know that when President Sarkozy was president of France, he uh, put together the Mediterranean Union, 17 additional states. Uh, Sixteen of those were Islamic states on the coast of the Mediterranean, and then the one Israeli state, Israel, the Jewish state. That makes 44 states. How in the world, if we're looking at current events, Fitting into the scenario for Bible prophecy in Daniel, for example, how do we get 44 states down to 10, like the 10 toes of Daniel 2, the 10 horns of Daniel 7?
7: Well, uh, there are ways to do it. I think we should note, first of all, that Mediterranean Union is also remnants of the Roman Empire. It's the same countries that once were in the Roman Empire. So there would be 44 but as the european union has been discussing strongly in the last two years it it doesn't work with twenty seven leaders and this supranational commission that they'll have to reduce it to make it more effective with less inertia in other words so it can make decisions quicker and faster and so proposals have been to to create a smaller more elite body of leaders who would be smaller and more flexible and could react quickly Uh, I have speculated, you have speculated, and obviously we're influenced by the scriptures, that that number could be 10. Uh, I've seen the European Union talking about 10, 12, maybe at the most 15 countries. Very interesting about the European Union, though. They often zero in on one of their favorite numbers. It's almost like they're choosing our favorite number, and that number is 10. Many organizations are based on the number of 10. So what I think will happen... And this is purely a guess, but perhaps an educated guess. I think they will eventually redivide Europe and the European Union, including those countries around the Mediterranean, into 10 regions. And those regions could then be the governing regions. They already have a, a group in the EU called the Regions Group that works on an economic level of regions, and that could well be how they could get from 44 down to 10 in the future.
1: We've only have just a moment or two left on this time of interview with you, Rob. So talk to me about the fact that many of the European Union leaders want to elect a president, one leader for the European Union, and he will be a strong leader, and he will lead this political, economic power base into the future. Sounds like the Antichrist to me.
7: Well, yes. they Again, this co- this economic crisis has forced them to say we need to react quicker we need a single leader right now in the structure of the european union there are three leaders they are saying they need one leader who can speak for them all and certainly we know that when they start thinking that way and when you're talking an empire we could well be looking at the stage totally being set for that final ruler of the world empire
1: Wow. And if that is not a scenario that sets the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled, I don't know what is. Dr. Rob Congdon, he's the man who covers the European Union for us. He's also a great student of Bible prophecy and a teacher of Bible prophecy as well. So that's how he pulls the geopolitical activities together with the biblical prophetic truth that will be fulfilled in the future. Rob, thank you so very much for joining us. This was great insight on the program today. I appreciate it so much. And we'll talk
0: again next week.
7: We'll look forward to it, to talk next week. I'll be in Europe. Lord bless.
0: Thanks, Rob. That's great information. Again, let me remind you, if you want to find out more information about the things that we are talking about, go to our website at prophecytoday.com. Check out all that's there and all that's available to help keep you aware of where we are on God's prophetic timetable. If you go to our website at prophecytoday.com, there are so many things that you will find. You'll find our top 10 news stories that we compile every single day and we put up there. And those are top 10 news stories about what's taking place around the world and how does it fit in to Bible prophecy. You also have a chance to listen to our Prophecy Today intelligence briefing, 15 minutes with our broadcast partners from around the world as they give us an understanding of what's taking place in their area of the world as they see it. We have PTV, Prophecy Today video videos from the land of Israel as we look at Bible prophecy and how Israel's role in Bible prophecy is so very important. We have our Prophecy Today Premium Resource Center, all of our archives of past programs, interviews, CD series, and all of our videos. We also have our PTRN, our Privacy Today radio network, where each day you can listen to whenever you need to. You can go to our website, take a look, click on the button, and you can listen to whatever programs, whatever messages, or whatever interviews that you want to listen to from our website. We have information on our program called PASS, Prophetic Army of Senior Saints. We put together a brand new program that is helping to equip senior saints. I know that senior saints, and you might be out there thinking, you know, what can I do? What, can, How can I still be involved in uh, my church and what I'm doing? You know, there's so much that you can do, so much that you can be a part of, and we have put together a program that will help equip you and that you could teach Bible prophecy in your church. Don't just sit on the sidelines. Get involved. Stay involved and be productive until the rapture of the church takes place. If you ever thought about going to Israel, we have a link to our Joshua travel site that has information on all of our trips. Two times a year we go to Israel. We look at Israel past, present, and future, there are two parts to our trip. The first is eight days in the land of Israel, where we start out in the city of Jerusalem. Then we'll go up to the north to the Sea of Galilee and the Golan Heights, and then we're back to the city of Jerusalem. After we finish our time in Israel, we have what we call the Jordan Extension, where we take you down to a lot on the Red Sea, and then take a one-day trip over to Petra. You can go to our Joshua Travel site and take a look at the dates. Twice a year, we go to Israel and see which one of those dates will fit into your schedule. Our website is put together to help equip you and keep you informed as to where we are and where our world is today in which we live. And as we take a look at the major trends of Bible prophecy. After a quick break, we're going to be right back with a look at the book.
3: Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set. Every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the Scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets.
1: It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. Right now, though, we're going to change our focus and we're going to focus on the Temple Mount and the location of past temples and most likely temples in the future as well. If there's a man that has knowledge of uh, the temple situation, both past, present, and future in Israel, it would be Dr. Randall Price. He's a professor at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. Why is it important that the temples, the past temples, the present uh, temple uh, work or effort or preparation, which will be the Tribulation Temple and Messiah's Temple, why is it important that it be on the location that God's Word says?
5: Well, of course... The Lord Jesus in Matthew 24, particularly verse 15 and following, tell us that when you see these things take place, and he talks about specific locations related to the place where the temple will stand and the abomination of desolation will take place. Revelation, you know, chapter 11, verse 2, tells us that there's going to be a trampling underfoot of the outer court of that place, and that is significant. If you don't know where the outer court is, if you don't know where the Holy of Holies was, where the abomination will take place. If you can't see this, then you're not going to be aware of how to flee. Now, of course, when this happens, the temple will be built in the right place. But you you understand that people who rebuild the temple uh, have no concern with uh, Bob Corning's theory, her book. They're, they're going to do what they already know is the case with the ancient sources, and the Talmud and Mishnah have indicated that the place where they are is right now, the place of the Temple Mount place where the pagan structure of the Dome of the Rock is, uh, has to be removed. There's no compromise or building next to it. It, it. It's in itself an abomination and defiles the area, so you cannot have a reinstitution of the Levitical practice uh, and the, the ritual service as it is now. It, is, it has to be cleansed. You've got a 35-acre platform up there, which uh, wherever the temple exactly stood there, still is part of these sacred boundaries, so uh, things have to change, and in order for that to take place, we need to at
1: least be accurate in terms of our understanding of the text. Absolutely correct, and I'm so grateful, Randy, that uh, you could join us because you're a scholar in this area. You know every one of the major archaeologists, you are one of them as well on many other projects that I would love to talk to you about sometime down the line, but I just wanted to get your expertise on this particular situation right now. Randy, thank you so very much. Uh, praise the Lord for your your ministry. Give us uh, the location of your website.
5: Well, it's worldofthebible.com, and that uh, is where we connect the world of the Bible with the word of the church so that we can uh, give some good as you do, Jimmy, uh, with a little different twist, maybe some of the archaeological and uh, historical ideas, but helping people understand how to interpret the Bible accurately so they can reapply it
1: in this 21st century. Amen. Wordofthebible.com. And that's the location to go for Dr. Randall Price and all of his information available. Randy, thank you much, buddy. We hopefully will be able to talk to you down the line sometime. All right. Thanks, Jimmy. Randy said that God's focal point on the earth is the temple, the temple mount. The temple is the original site of the Garden of Eden. It's where the Lord will give his son, Jesus Christ, a temple. That's the Davidic covenant, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, where the Lord will build a temple. Jesus builds that, Zechariah chapter 6 and verse 12, and rules and reigns from there forever, Zechariah chapter 6 and verse 13. So this is a key location. What a statement about the Jewish temples. They are the location on the earth where the Lord has said he will dwell among his people forever. Well, I want to think with you just a moment about the temples past, present, and prophetic. The Lord set the pattern for all the temples that would be in the future at the time 3,500 years ago when the Jewish people would have completed their 40 years in wandering in the wilderness and come into the land that God had promised them, the promised land, to set up a temporary transportable worship center, which was the tabernacle. For 40 years they moved through this wandering in the wilderness with a transportable worship center, this tabernacle, and it contains the pattern for all the temples yet to be built. That was destroyed, but indeed on Mount Moriah there was a temple that was going to be built. That's the location where King David purchased the threshing floor from Ornan the Jebusite. This is all in Second Chronicles, and Solomon built the temple, the first temple which was promised by the Lord to his father, King David, the first installment of the Davidic covenant. Well, Solomon's temple stood there for a number of years. It was destroyed in 586 BC by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, that's recorded in Second Chronicles chapter 36, when the temple was destroyed. The Bible tells us 2 Chronicles chapter 35 and verse 3, uh, where Josiah had that Ark of the Covenant placed, waiting for Zerubbabel to get permission from the leaders of the Medo Persian Empire to return to Jerusalem and build the temple. It was a very simple temple, the one that's a rubble built. Along comes Herod the Great. He refurbished the temple. But then in 70 AD, General Titus of the Roman Empire, his father the Roman emperor, and there he was given a command by his father Vespasian to return to Jerusalem and destroy the temple, bringing all the treasuries of the temple into Rome for the purpose of rebuilding the Roman Empire. Now, for 2,000 years, there's been no temple on the Temple Mount in the city of Jerusalem. The Bible continually exhorts the Jewish people, they must have a temple. And it's going to be Messiah's temple. Jesus will build it, again, Zechariah 6.12, rule and reign from it, Zechariah 6.13. And Jesus said to Zechariah the prophet, I will return to Jerusalem, I will build my temple. But let me remind you of something. Before that temple is built by Jesus Christ, there will be a tribulation temple. That's talked about in the book of Daniel, chapter 9 and verse 27. Matthew records what Jesus had to say to confirm Daniel's prophecy. In chapter 24 of Matthew, verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, Apostle Paul talked about that temple, 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 4, which will be desecrated by the Antichrist. And John the Revelator said, Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, there'll be a temple on the Temple Mount during the tribulation period. By the way, all preparations have been made for that tribulation temple. Only one thing must happen. Jesus must shout. The archangel will shout. Trump of God will sound. The rapture of the church takes place, and Christians are out of here leaving for the heavenlies. Then they start construction on that temple. And may I just say to you, that construction is ready to begin right now, thus the rapture could happen at any moment. And having said that, nothing left for me to say, except let's keep
3: looking up